It's been quite a while since many of us have taken an exam, so it's understandable that we might have forgotten some of the best practices. To be honest, I suspect a significant number of us may not have been especially au fait with those best practices at the time either. So that can make it really tricky when we're trying to nudge our own teams along, especially if along the way we start to focus more on the results than the habits and behaviours that they need along the way. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, the third season of our podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends, students who are overzealous and anxious to those who are underperforming yet nonchalant. Through these shared experiences, I hope that you'll take some comfort that you're not alone. And perhaps more importantly, I hope that you'll take away some insights and advice that will help you to support your own team, so that they not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm chatting with Kim Constable. Kim has been teaching for over 15 years in both the UK and across Europe, covering a range of social science and humanities subjects. She also shares a phenomenal number of resources on her website, which cover study skills and other resources, all useful for parents, teachers and students alike. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. One of the things I'm really interested in from your perspective as a teacher is how you are finding students finding the run-up to exams this year. I'm thinking GCSEs and and A-level in particular. In one respect, it does seem that they feel a little bit more stressful about it because of tags and cags from previous years. We've got mocks coming up after Christmas and the year 13s are kind of like a lot more anxious about it because they're not seeing it as a practice run because it could be used as part of their final grade should exams not run again. So there's a lot more anxiety around in-class assessments, mocks and things like that because of that CAGS and TAGS process. I am finding one of the benefits that came out of lockdown is they're a lot more independent. They're willing to put in that work independently that usually they're a bit reticent to do but because they've now got the skills to do it because they had to do it the study or the independent study is a little bit more proactive than it was previously which is great i mean great to hear that every cloud has a silver lining this is what you always sort of hope for isn't it coming out of any anything like that but the thing about those mocks as you say it's quite a change this year that normally mocks would be relatively low stakes i mean they still count for something but Typically, a lot of students go into them saying, well, they're only mocks, it doesn't really matter. But as you say, this year, the emphasis could change. And we'll only know it's going to change possibly into the new year. So it seems right that that would have a bigger impact on the on the kids this year. Yeah. And as a teacher, I kind of want them to go in a little bit calmer and a little bit more kind of, if I do make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. And there is still time to make those changes and to adjust study skills and learn more and get more practice in so that they can do better six months down the line in an external exam. I've seen a lot of students kind of getting themselves into a bit of a state and stress and anxiety taking over, whereas previously you didn't really have that. It was more kind of, yes, I'm worried about it. Yes, I want to do well, 
but I'm not going to use my entire Christmas holidays and cram everything just in case. And that's even though I've told my students what topics will be coming up in their mock, because that's roughly what we understand will happen in the summer. But again, they're not telling us that until February, which is helpful. But they're still kind of feeling that if this goes badly, if I mess this up, I might not get into uni, I might not get into sixth form. And it's trying to get them to say, well, okay, it might be used, but it won't be the only thing that's used when we if we have to do it. And to still think of it as I've been trying to rephrase it instead of it being an assessment, it's a diagnostic to try and take some of that stress and anxiety out. So it's not the end. It's a point where you can see where perhaps you're stronger, where perhaps you're weaker, so that you can then focus in your study and revision and you're not trying to do everything. I really like the idea of looking at it as a diagnostic event, really. Because as you say, going going into it, you're finding out much more about how you cope with the stress, how well you fared in the run-up with the revision. Did you do any? How effective was it? Actually, coming out with a number is perhaps indicative of what you might get. But unless exactly those questions come up, the actual percentage you come out at the end of it I presume is is perhaps even the less important thing in usual years yeah and I mean when I do assessments in class with my students I never give out grades I I record them on my department mark book and I do all that sort of thing but on their papers I don't put any marks I don't put any grades if they're desperate to know it after we've done all the feedback then they can message me on teams or send me an email and I'll let them know but I want to take that pressure of looking at a grade and kind of going oh, I got a C, I'm failing, or I got an A, I don't need to do any work, taking that out and just kind of going, okay, I did this bit well, I didn't do this bit so well, this is the bit I need to work on. I didn't quite understand that question. So my focus is more on how to improve rather than that number or letter or grade that they get. And that seems to work quite well. Oh, I think that's I think that's fascinating. I absolutely love that idea. But I wonder how much the students sort of, well, how long does it take the students to move away from that peer comparison so that they because you sort of get that feeling that that's what students want to do certainly with my own daughter if she comes away and she says I only got 53 percent but I was the second highest in the class and everyone else got this and the average was that and, and there's always this element of comparison or justification yeah I, I think because I said it from the beginning of year 12 and say this is how we do things you if you want it you can get it if you don't you don't I actually find a majority of my class don't actually ask for their marks or their grades so yes they want to compare but they tend to compare when we're doing the feedback and kind of going oh you said that I like that bit I'm going to take that bit from yours or I said this instead of that and they'll question whether or not which one of them's right and usually in sociology they're both right because it's sociology and everything kind of is amalgamous mess I think it works better with an essay-based subject than it does, say, with maths or science, where it's either a, a more of a right or wrong type exam. I think it does take away some of that anxiety because they're no longer thinking, I got this grade, my target grade is this, and I got this, and I'm not getting my target. I'm not a big fan of target grades. <laughs> they're useful for me as a teacher. I don't think they're particularly useful for students other than causing stress. So, for example, I've just done an assessment with my year 12s and when they got their assessment back and a few of them asked for their grades, I gave them the grades and they were like, oh, but I'm four grades under target. And I'm like, yeah, you've been doing sociology for seven weeks. What do you expect? You can't be an A grade student after seven weeks. 
it takes time, it takes practice. And that's the other reason why I don't like giving them out in lessons because they see the target grade, they see their grade and then they start, they feel a little bit demoralized. Even if it's a really good piece of work, if it's not that target or it's not quite what they think they should be getting, they get demoralized and I don't really like having tears in my classroom, so I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and you can understand why. <laughs> and I think it's really interesting that you sort of move them away from that false idol almost. And then, as you said, it, it helps them to think much more about their own situation and, and how they can improve on what it is that they did without worrying about what the letter or number is at the end of it straight away. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I try to instill in students, whatever year I'm teaching them, is if you have done your best, if you've prepared as much as you feel you could have done, whatever you come out with, you can be proud of. And I'm really honest with them. I've never been an A-grade student in my life. I've been an average student. And part of that is exam anxiety and not understanding where my anxiety was coming from, but also undiagnosed dyslexia, because I wasn't diagnosed until I was in university. But showing them that it's not about the letter or grade, it's how proud you can be of what you have achieved. I'm proud of my GCSE grade D in dance, because it was dance and I really am not a creative person in that respect. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew I did the best I could in that sense. And it's trying to get them to understand that we can't all be a star or nine grade students and that's fine if you, it's the best you've done and the best you can do be proud of what you've achieved and that takes a lot of talking to them about it because they then get the mixed message of others going gotta get this you gotta get this you gotta get this and it's sort of like well it's your education if you know you've done the best you can be proud of it whatever it is I also use the example of my older sister who got her GCSE maths at the age of 34 because my niece was doing her GCSEs at the same time and she sat the exam seven times before she got her grade five. There's an award for persistence as well with that. But how incredible. I mean, what a display to your child as well that I didn't get it, but I'm going to go through this with you and we'll do it together. Yeah, it's almost a mixed message that comes at students. It's kind of like, if you've tried your best, be proud, but the, you need to get this grade or you need to get to this level. And that, I think, can cause maybe some cognitive dissonance. It's sort of like, but I've tried my best, but I'm still not getting what you tell me to, so I'm not good enough. And it's like, well, personally, that's not what I try to get across to the students. No, but as a parent, we feel that. And I think we, we really, really struggle with that conflict as well of knowing that it's the higher the grade, the better, in inverted commas, their chances when it comes to college and then university and beyond. But at the same time, I think that intrinsic feeling of pride that they've done the best that they could and fulfilled their potential. And as you said, with your, your D in dance, it's that kind of feeling that on the one hand you think, ah, oh, well, never mind. But on the other hand, you go, that's fantastic for you. I'm, I'm really pleased with you. Yeah, I also use driving as an example, particularly with my sixth formers, when they don't necessarily get the best grade on their first timed piece of work. So, well, when you learn to drive, you don't get behind the wheel of a car and you're a driver. You stall, you grind your gears, you cut people up and things like that. You have to make the mistakes in order to learn. And again, I use the example, I took me four attempts to pass my driving test. But if I hadn't made those mistakes, I would not have been able to become a better driver and pass my test. And that was part of the whole poster, I don't know if you saw it on the website, of the behaviours of a successful student. Exactly. And I was literally just going to ask you, because I think a lot of what you're talking about there is, isn't so much about the 
sitting down and the revising and the taking in information and regurgitating. But actually, things like habits and self-belief, courageousness, all of these kinds of things are sort of the habits that you talk about. So I'd really love to explore some more of those with you. Yeah, so one of the things I put together this academic year was a poster which says the nine behaviours of a successful student. And nowhere on that poster do I mention grades or marks or anything like that. It's about you being the best that you can be to get the best you can get. And the first thing I put on there was a successful student makes mistakes. They learn from those mistakes. Another one I put on there was a successful student is brave, that they're willing to try new things and they're willing to try something different to see if it works better and one of the key ones on there that I always point or two of the key ones that I always point out is they look after themselves a successful student gets enough sleep they eat well they exercise they listen to their own mental health and do what they need to do to look after themselves and if they're having a day where it's kind of like no you know what I just can't do this I'm going to bed and I'm going to curl up under the duvet with a book or a horror film or whatever then do that because that's what you need at that time. And the other one is about asking for help. One of the things I find really lovely for about my students is whenever they message me on Teams or email me, they're like, sorry to disturb you, miss. And it's like, I'm kind of here to do, this is my job to help you. But they're always like, I'm really sorry to disturb you before they ask whatever help they need. But I also have students who are like, I don't want to take up your time. Like, that's what I'm here for. If you want help, come and see me. I will arrange a time and we can sit down and we can talk things through. But don't wait until the last minute to ask me at the point of learning rather than at the point of assessment. Because by that point, you've then got that panic where it fogs your brain. And even if I'm trying to help you, it's not going to go in because your brain's too cluttered. I think that's such an interesting one. Think about it from a parent perspective, that actually we all have busy lives. And I think it's almost mantra like I've got I'm so busy I've got no time and and you hear it a lot from everywhere from no matter what your job is and no matter working from home or traveling all day long that actually time is a precious commodity that we seem to be running out of fast and it's interesting to think that we would definitely make the time for the things that are important and certainly if our children needed help then I don't know anyone who wouldn't find the time to do that but you do wonder whether or not actually just that impression of hecticness is a barrier to sort of kids asking for help or sort of saying I'm floundering a bit. Yeah, I, I think that they see us as teachers. That there's a lot going on for teachers at the moment with mitigations and Ofsted and everyone's being pulled in 101 directions. So they sometimes, I think, possibly feel that I don't want to add that one more thing. And one of the things I try to get across to my students is I will miss my reports deadline. I will miss a meeting if you need me. If you need me to sit down with you for 10 minutes to go through something that we've been doing in class, I will do that regardless of what else is going on. But I can't do that if you don't ask. I can't. And, and with six forms, it's sort of like you're 16, 17 years old. I am not going to chase you. If you want help, I'm here and I will help you. But you have to ask for it and you have to acknowledge that sometimes you can't do it by yourself. And being in boarding, it's one of the things I like about my boarding duty is it gives me the opportunity to actually sit down with students and help them in a more relaxed environment. 
because there's less pressure in the evenings to I haven't got a lesson coming up or it's not lunchtime or a meeting or anything like that we can just sit and talk things through but yeah I think the busyness of life for students as well is of I don't have time to sit down with you for 10 minutes it's getting them to realize that sometimes you need to slow it down and it's not about who's first to get there it's about just making sure we all get there at the end Mm. and you see that I think with some of the younger ones don't you that actually that idea of I'm running out of time to do this and I don't necessarily mean that in a in a stressed or an anxious way but also in in certainly in the younger ones I suspect more of a I've allotted this amount of time to it I'm not going to be thinking about schoolwork after dinner or outside of classroom maybe and so actually they (laughs) they do then create an extra burden on themselves to either get everything sorted and solved in a in a really short space of time or it just gets lost to the ether yeah and it's one of the things i try to do with my younger students and it's slightly difficult with the younger ones because a lot of them i teach pshe to so we don't do assessments in the same way we don't do homework in the same way and things like that is that it's it's not about getting it done quickly it's about getting it done right so when i'm marking books say for re when i teach re I look at the tasks that we've done and kind of going, okay, you've done the minimum I've required, but is that the best that you can do? And we have a, they have a sticker in the front of their books, which is kind of success criteria. Before I take their books in, I want, I want you to go through, I want you to check your spelling, your punctuation, your grammar, particularly the use of full stops, because they seem to forget that, and capital letters. And I want you to think, am I proud of this work? Is this the work that I would be happy for you to show my parents for you to put out to the public to show the public and I get them to choose one piece of work that they think is their best piece of work that we've done to that point and they put a little post-it note in there and kind of go this is the bit of work I'm really proud of so trying to build in that sense of pride about not just getting it right but being proud of what they've done and that fits in quite nicely with our school ethos which is pride positivity and passion to get them to think am I proud of this am I passionate about this and it also feeds in with our younger students we do a program called the genius hour which I coordinate where they can do a project on anything they like anything that they are interested in a question they want to answer a hobby that they have and we set it up just before October half term with year seven and then they have until January to work on their project and then we have like an American style science fair where they have a little table and they set their project up and parents come in pre-covid to wander around and have a look and then each category is then judged for best project within that category and it's getting them to think of something that's more long-term so it's not a case of I've got to get it done now so it's ready for next lesson it's kind of like I've got to build this time in between now and January to get this project done we've had amazing projects we had one on the mathematics of the solar system that I didn't understand at all we had hovercraft made one of the students made a hovercraft and brought that in to show the science of it we get a lot of baking ones the science of baking football sports and things like that and every year they outdo themselves in what they show but it's starting to build in those study skills and those independent learning skills in a very low stakes kind of way that we can then build up through year eight year nine and into GCSE and A level. So I think there's an interesting segue then so on the one hand we've got those habits and the behaviours as you said sort of 
bravery, learning from mistakes, and all of these amazing qualities that you would hope that your children would have, that you need throughout life, no matter what you're doing, and certainly beyond school. And then on the other hand, you've got the raw kinds of skills that you need to apply in order to learn and to revise and then go through. On balance, is it that you need equal measure of both? Is there a magic formula you can share with us? I don't know if there's a magic formula. I think it's a balance of both, but I don't know what the balance is because it will vary from student to student. I think it's quite individualised as to whether you need to work more on the behaviours or whether you need to work more on the skills. But one thing I do think is really important is that we're explicitly teaching the skills and not just expecting students to know how to do things. So teaching them how to do research, teaching them how to take notes, how to study and effective study skills. So when you talk about study there, we're talking about sort of that initial bit of learning and then revision, the bit that happens after the fact. Yeah, so study you're doing whilst you're still learning content, it's consolidation, it's identifying gaps at the point of learning and filling them, whether that be asking a teacher, looking at textbooks, using the multitude of online resources that are out there these days. And then revision is more kind of recapping, going back over, preparing perhaps for an assessment or a diagnostic or an exam. I think if you've got good study skills, that independent study process, the revision isn't as arduous because you're very much being able to kind of go, well, this is the bit I don't quite get. So that's the bit I need to go over now rather than trying to do the entirety of the course content or whatever the assessment or exam is on. And that's the other thing I try to instill in the students is prioritisation and being specific because there are some things that you just get and you're kind of like, yeah, that's fine. I know that. That's brilliant. And there are things that you can go over and over and over and just don't quite get. Um, and I use the example of neo-Marxist theory of crime. Taught it for 15 years and I, for some reason it just won't click. So every time I teach it, I have to go back over it and revise it so that I can then teach it. But other aspects I was kind of, I've taught and like gender and crime. I, I, the first time I've kind of gone through that a few times, I was like, actually, no, you know what? I've got that. I know what I'm doing with that. But being very specific in what they're doing. And I think a lot of students get very overwhelmed with revision because they think they've got to do everything and they've got to cover everything. And what I also say to them to do is interleave between topics that they're not very good at and topics they are quite good at. Because if they're only focusing on the ones that they're not good at, they get demoralised and they then kind of go, I can't do this. But if you jump between the two, you're going from this is hard to I've got this. And the endorphins and the chemicals that I don't particularly understand all kind of come out and you, you feel more motivated to kind of get on and carry on. I spend a lot of time doing one-to-ones with students who perhaps are struggling or feeling overwhelmed. And usually it's a, one of the boarding staff or a, a tutor or something. like, Can you sit down with so-and-so for a half an hour? They're just feeling a little bit overwhelmed with it. And one of the first things I say to them is, first of all, you have to do this. Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to do it but here are some strategies that can help you do it. We talk about to-do lists and I'm very much a to-do list person. Everything's listed and things like that. And I am that person that puts things on that I've already done just so I can cross it off and feel like I've achieved something. I say to the students, it's like when you're planning your revision, your study or whatever it is you're doing, be specific in the tasks that you're planning on doing. Don't just say, I'm going to study sociology or I'm going to study history or I'm going to read for English. What exactly are you going to do? What is the thing that you're going to do that you can cross off that to-do list? Because when you see you're actually making progress, 
then you're more motivated to continue doing it. And studying revision is one of those things that if you don't have that, it's very easy to feel like you're getting nowhere because there's not necessarily a product that you're producing. So I do say to sort of like have your to-do activities and cross them off as you do them. And then you can see that you're making progress. You're, you can see that you're getting somewhere. And that's more motivating than having a massive pile of flashcards. And we also find that from our own perspective that actually it helps fight procrastination as well. So if you don't know what it is you've got to do and you're faced with broad neo-Marxist theories on crime, that actually if you had that whittled down to the next level, then you know exactly where it is you've got to go. And so progression actually then just feels like a matter of following instructions rather than sort of this gambit of possibilities. One of the ways that my brain works is a lot to do with chunking things down. I was a non-specialist when I first started teaching sociology. I'm a politics graduate. I'm a PSHE trained teacher. And I got given A-level sociology to teach. So in teaching myself, I had to chunk it down into basically learning phases or lessons so that I could learn it before I taught it to the students. And what I found by doing that is it then helps the students because they're not looking, as you say, at neo-Marxist theory of crime. They can chunk it down into how is neo-Marxism and Marxism similar? How are they dissimilar? What is their view of how to understand crime? What is their evaluation? And by breaking it down into chunks, they can look at that and kind of go, well, I know that chunk and I know that chunk. This is the chunk that I need to look at. So one of the resources I've created, and this was a lockdown kind of, oh God, we're going to remote learning, I need to do something to support my students resource, was I created these summary notes books, which took the whole of the unit, broke it down into key questions. So when they were doing their note taking or they were doing their study, they could really look at those individual questions to see this is what I need to know. This is the question I need to answer whilst I'm doing my study. Can I answer it? Do I need to ask Miss for help? Do I need to check a different resource? And I've done it for all but one unit that we teach. And it's the unit I don't teach my co-teacher teachers. So it's kind of like, yeah, I'll do that one soon. <laughs> but it does seem to, particularly the students who perhaps are I, wouldn't I don't like the term lower ability, but the students that struggle a little bit more, giving them that scaffold has really helped them feel like they're like, as they're filling the book up, they're kind of going, I'm getting somewhere. I know this stuff rather than I know nothing. I, I don't get it. It, it, it. And that way, when they do come to me for help, they can be, can you help me answer this question rather than I need help with sociology? Exactly. And I think also that point of reference does help them, doesn't it, to see this is my specific gap. So I can't revise something I don't know. So head back to the teacher or to someone who will know, whether that's a parent, if you're lucky enough to have a parent who understands, well, I was going to go with algebra, but neo-Marxist theories on crime, I suppose, works as well. Go to someone so that they can help you to sort of fill those gaps that you talked about before and build that bridge in their learning in order that they can come away and independently revise and recap and rehearse and, and all of those other good R's words. Yeah, and I do say to them, it's sort of like, study doesn't have to be a solo endeavour. In my year 12 group, there's one group of four students who are in the same sociology class and the same history class, and they've created this little study group. So they can then support each other with, if one of them miss it, doesn't understand something, then they can possibly explain it to them in a way that they can understand it that's slightly different to the way that I've explained it. And it's great to see them when you see them 
sat down studying together. They're having a laugh and a giggle, but they're also getting on and doing the work and showing that it's not just you, that there are others out there as well that you can turn to. As I say, I do recommend they come and see me, but they don't have to come and see the teacher. They can go and see somebody that perhaps they feel a little bit more comfortable with or watch a YouTube video or whatever else is out there. And also quizzing as well. I recommend a lot of quizzing because as much as, particularly with A-level, the skills are more analysis and application in the exam, you can't do that if you don't know your knowledge. So things like Quizlet, Blocker, Kahoot, Seneca, all of those wonderful online quiz systems are great for them to kind of make sure that they're understanding what they do and do not know. But I also recommend we, it was something like we used to do when I was at uni, which was the Skittle game, where they would have a pile of Skittles in the middle of the table, would quiz each other. If you got a question right, you got a Skittle. If you got a question wrong, you had to put a pound in the drinks jar. Certainly not GCSE age. <laughs> Obviously, we don't do. I don't recommend that with my students. <laughs> not GCSE, but it was that kind of thing. Sort of like by creating the questions that you're going to use in your game, you are revising. And because they're so competitive, they they're going to go deeper than they need to because they want to catch their friends out. Getting them to understand they're not on their own with this. That there is a system and a backup there to help them with their study and with their revision and things like that. What I love about the Skittles game, other than the obvious chance of either winning money or alcohol, depending on how <laughs> the game's set up, and also with the study group as well, is that actually this perception that you're fighting there is that study has to be, you have to be suffering in order for your revision or study to be working well. Whereas in actual fact, I'm sure exactly the opposite is true. If you can approach something and find a level of enthusiasm, find, dare I say it, something to enjoy about it, that actually you're much more likely to have that kind of learning and knowledge stick than not. And one of the things I do with my lessons is I try to incorporate study activities as part of my consolidation in class. So I'm modelling those activities for them to then be able to do independently. And one of the ones I do is we have arguments so they get about 10, 15 minutes to prepare. So we take an essay question, turn it into an argument question. They get 10, 15 minutes to prepare and then they just argue with each other. There's no kind of taking turns or formal debate. The only rule is stay on question, don't get personal and insult each other. Um, and I, I don't really step in. I just kind of sit and listen. If I hear a misconception or something that's not quite accurate, I'll step in and correct but I just let them go for it. And it's so much fun to watch. And I'm like, well, you can do that independently as a group. You can take an essay question and argue it. And that will give you ideas about what you can then put in your essay. Do you remember the game where you'd write a line, turn it over and somebody else would write the next line of the story and you turn it over and then you'd end up with this? Ah, yes. I do that with essay plan. Okay. So get somebody to write this first line. But rather than turn it over, because obviously we want a chain of reasoning going through, is then the next person writes the next one and the next person writes the next one. So they're building up the paragraph, but it's going round in a circle rather than it being one person writing the whole thing. We do what I call a chain of reasoning conversation. So basically I found a picture of two anime characters shouting at each other and put speech bubbles going up the page. And when we do it independently, they kind of bounce back and forth. But now that we're no longer quite as COVID mitigations, 
they'll write the first bubble and then they'll move to somebody else's to write the next bubble and then move to somebody else's to write the next bubble. But it's got to match what's already on the page. And they end up with this peer-created essay plan. So they may come back with arguments that they find like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, I didn't think about that one either. So it's getting them to be collaborative and work together in class to then go, well, you can do that outside of lessons as well. It's not a solo endeavour. The only bit that's really solo is when you walk into the example and that's the bit where you're on your own. But other than that, use each other. You'll get things that other people won't get. They'll get things that you won't get. So use each other as a resource. I don't know if that's something that as schools we don't really necessarily push as an idea. And there's this kind of like when you're doing revision, you need to be silent in the classroom doing your own individual revision. When my classrooms, it's noise because they're talking to each other. They're helping each other and supporting each other rather than trying to do it all on their own. Hmm. Do you think that's more particular to the humanities um, nature of the subject that you teach, though? Quite possibly. <laughs> I've not really had any experience in science or maths or anything like that. But I do think there is elements for peer to peer support in maths and in science and in all subjects but I think in my lessons they're kind of used to talking to each other because that's how we generally are in lessons it's usually when I want them talking that they're silent and when I want them silent they're talking (laughs) that sounds familiar yeah (laughs) (laughs) even I guess if the discursive nature of your subject is particular to your subject and doesn't apply as well to maybe a science actually some of the things you were talking about underneath were applicable to everything and I think that's that's about being more inventive in the way that you look at revision and not just following I've written all of my flashcards on four by six index cards and I will work my way through all of them religiously and because that's what I've been told to do or I'll draw a mind map but actually looking at ways in which can really be engaging and sort of attract your attention and get your imagination going and and I'm fairly sure there's a way you could do that for science as well as for something as riveting as sociology. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing that always sticks in my head is the best way to learn something is to teach it. For me, that's how I've learned sociology is I, I had to teach it, so I had to learn it. But if you can explain it to somebody else, then you understand it. So in kind of study type things, I said to them, so like, why not create your own podcasts or your own videos? You don't have to share them with anybody. But the creation of them is then that study and revision. And you can then go back and watch it. And it might be, yeah, you'll cringe at your voice and what you've done and things like that. We all do. But you might kind of go, hang on a minute, that's not quite right. I now know that that's that's something else. Or, oh, I'd forgotten about that. The creation of it acts as a revision tool. But then the re-looking at it acts as a kind of recollection and recall. And I, I say to students sometimes, it's like your brain is like a filing cabinet but you have to find ways to open the files. And that's where the study and the revision and the recall and the retrieval practice all come in. The more you practice, the quicker you can find the file that you need. They kind of get it. They kind of look at me a bit weird, but then half of my analogies go over their heads. But I also say to them, it's sort of like, there is a process to it and it's not a free for all. Personally, I'm not a big fan of flashcards. I don't think they're used effectively. Creating them, yes, can be helpful. But if you're not ever going to do anything with them, that's just a waste of trees. And I know there's the Likert system, which does work really well. But at the same time, it's kind of like there are lots of other things you can do. So I have a process. The very first thing they need to do is prioritise. 
look at where their gaps are, where their weaknesses are, and that's where they first start their focus. Then do a review, be it watching a video. So for sociology, I create lecture videos from when we were doing remote learning. I personally never watch them, but the students say they're fine. Or any other YouTube video or something like that, just as a kind of refresher. Not taking any notes or taking a few notes here and there, but generally just kind of reminding yourself of the topic. Then I get them to do what I call a trigger sheet. So you mentioned my maps, that's one way of doing it. But basically a trigger sheet is a single side of A4 or A3 and you brain dump for that topic on that sheet. I use the revision clocks as well, break it down into 12 chunks, fill up as much as you can, mind mapping, Cornell note taking sheets, whatever works for them. I've got one student who's really into sketch noting and I'm like, yep, yeah, go for it. But they have to write down as much as they can without using their notes so they can see what they know and then get the notes out and spot any gaps and kind of go, okay, so that's the bit I wasn't sure on. So they can really narrow down where they need to focus their revision. But with exam groups, that then needs to lead into exam practice. It's not enough to just know the sociology. You've got to be able to answer the questions the way the exam board want them to. And I never get them to write a full essay because I don't have time to mark it. So they do the plan, chain of reasoning, conversation, introduction, first paragraph. They can use that as a trigger to revise from. The introduction first paragraph is for practicing the skills of writing that essay. Otherwise, if they're writing out full essays and they haven't quite got the structure, or they haven't quite got the knowledge, it's a waste of their time. So trying to be that little bit more proactive and kind of thinking, is this an effective way for me to use my time? Means that they then can then go to the cinema with their friends or go out and play football or spend an hour playing on the computer game. But building it in to make sure that they do have that time to look after themselves as well as study. And I am constantly on at my students about not cramming and how cram I was a crammer. I used to, I was the one that was up at two, three in the morning going over notes before an assessment. And thinking back now, whenever I went into that assessment, my brain was too full. I hadn't had time to process that information to be able to then make it useful in the exam. So it, it, for me, I'm just trying to tell them it's kind of like, if you do effective study and effective revision leading up to it, you shouldn't need to be up until two, three in the morning cramming the night before or still looking over your notes when you're stood in the queue waiting to go into the exam. Because all you're going to do is overload your brain and not give it time to process and therefore have too much in there to actually be able to use effectively when you need to. You hear, don't you, about sort of students going in. And I remember from my own experience that you go into the exam, if you've done the cramming the night before and guilty as charged again, actually you become so stressed and so wound that actually your brain sort of clams up, not to mention the fact that not having had a good night's sleep the night before is not giving you the best chances of performing on the day. I mean, one of the things I did with a group, it must be three years ago now because it was the last time we did external exams, is when we were stood outside waiting to go into the exam, I got them all to put earphones in and put on their kind of entrance music. One of them was listening to Victorious by Panic at the Disco. Somebody else was listening to Chesney Hawks' I Am the One and Only. Anything that kind of gives... It takes all sorts. It, it does. Um, I had one actually listening to Metallica's Enter Sandman, <laughs> um, which I thought was epic. <laughs> but it, it was that kind of like, right, you're all going to listen to this piece, whatever piece of music it is, for the three or four minutes before you go into that exam. Because when you've got that kind of 
entrance music type stuff, you kind of get that kind of, I'm confident I can do this. This is all great. And they're not then talking to each other and panicking each other. Because that's the thing that I find as well, is that they all sit there. Did you revise this? Oh, no. Did you do this? Did you do that? And then they all start panicking about what they haven't done rather than focusing on what they have done or being straightforward and going in. I also say to them, after the exam, just leave. Don't hang around and talk about it. Just leave. Two worst events, aren't they? There's almost that post-mortem and then, as you say, so almost like some weird pre-mortem sort of the analysis of what you have or haven't done before you actually sit down is not going to help anyone. I mean, at that point, it's already too late, isn't it? Yeah, and it, uh, when they come out of the exam, it's like, there's nothing you can do about it now. So leave it, move on. And dissecting what the questions were or anything like... I mean, as a teacher, I'm interested in finding out what the questions were and how they think it, it went. But I don't think it's necessarily healthy for some of them to be that reflective straight after the exam. I think then we're back full circle, aren't we? Because that's also part of those habits that you're getting into. If you can sort of listen to Metallica and bolster yourself confident. I mean, who doesn't have their, their confidence bolstered by a spot of Metallica before an hour and a half or a, a three hour sit down? But actually, that's all part of that mindset, isn't it? Of I believe in myself. I've done the right things. I've done myself justice. Now all I've got to do is perform. Yeah, and I think that's, as you say, it's that balance of having the behaviours and the mindset alongside the skills to know that you've done your best and to know that you've put everything you can forward without cramming and without getting yourself stressed and anxious. And there are always going to be those students who get exam anxiety. I'm one of them. I absolutely hate exams. But if we can create a situation where they know the anxiety is natural because you're going into a judged scenario you are being judged but at the same time say whatever they say whatever they come back with I know I've done the best I can I know I have done myself proud and that's what we need to get the students to the point of is getting the top grades doesn't mean you haven't done your best Then you think it's strange how great student is normally associated with the ones that are getting the top grades. I think we're really quick to associate the eights and nines, or A's and A stars in old money, with brilliance. But that's often only part of the story. I mean, don't get me wrong, a lot of the time these top grades do come with really studious types, but I can't help but wonder, especially having listened to Kim, whether the focus on output is sometimes at the cost of the skills and the behaviours that all students need along the way. It's certainly something that's been playing on my mind while Emily's doing her GCSEs, and I guess that's why I loved hearing Kim talk about this focus on non-subject specific skills, and the fact that she encourages these in her pupils I think is incredible. The nine habits of successful students that she talked about, you may remember, and is something that's on her website, and given her kind permission, we'll link to it from our own. These are not just about the mechanics of studying and revising, but attitudes, outlooks and behaviours that are not just important in the approach to exams, but I'd suggest in life. And these are absolutely the kind of habits that we can display as parents and encourage in our own teams. What I especially, I think, clicked with me was how these complement the study skills that our young people really do need to do their best in their exams. 
I thought it was really interesting to hear Kim explain the difference between learning and revising. It's a distinction I think that some of us struggle with. Certainly in the GCSE phase of our teens' lives, the lion's share of learning happens in the classroom, leaving home study to be about recapping and consolidating and revising. That shifts as students undertake A-levels and then again at university, of course, as you'd expect. In particular, though, I thought that Kim's talk about processing the prioritisation, the reviewing and then identifying the gaps is something that all students could really easily adopt. It was interesting to hear that many teens have become more independent with their studies as a result of the lockdown experiences. In a way, I guess they had to. Although if we're honest, I suspect that a number of us parents will also have seen that the opposite is true as well, especially in some of the younger learners. And that's why I think it's so important that we do what we can at home to encourage them along the right path. There's a huge amount of research out there that shows the impact that parental interest and involvement at home can have on the students' outcomes. This is absolutely not about doing the work for them, or necessarily even with them, but it is about paying an active interest and, importantly, helping them to identify the kinds of habits and skills that they need to reach their full potential. My thanks to Kim for taking the time to chat with me today, and to you, of course, for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share your story, then please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways in which you can support your own young person with their prioritisation and study skills in the approach to their GCSEs and A-levels, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information, not just about our innovative time management and study organising approach, but also a blog packed full of useful articles, hints and tips. To find out more, why not make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com. If you found yourself nodding away to this episode, or if you found a nugget of something you're going to try out with your own team, would you mind leaving us a review, and if it's not too much to ask, a five-star rating? It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like the rest of us, are all looking to make some sense in the run-up to exams. Of course, don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast. <laughs>